puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Carwood and Company All right, Higherside Chatters, if one digs through the vast 40 and archives of this weird world, they'll find all sorts of unexplained stories. Encounters with spirits, fairies, strange crafts in the sky, missing time, foreign beings, odd disappearances, and everything in between. But there are few, if any, stories that your humble host enjoys more than the classic tale of the green children of Woolpit. The story goes that in the late 12th century, two very strange children emerged in the village of Woolpit, England. Their skin was green, they spoke an unknown language, and wore clothes of a color and material the locals had never seen. Weak from their journey from some mysterious place, and uneasy about any of the unknown food items presented to them, the young boy died, leaving only the older sister, who is said to have been taken in by a local and eventually grew up to learn English, lose her green coloring, and speak of a mysterious land of perpetual twilight on the other side of a long and mysterious tunnel she says her and her brother traveled through from a subterranean world. A provocative tale that leaves one with all sorts of questions and of course uncertainty about the validity of the whole ordeal. Well, today's guest, Duncan Lunan, is not one to leave something like this so open-ended. And he investigated the story more deeply than any other person on the planet. He tracked back the origins of the tale to its sources, factored in the political climate at the time, examined the elite class characters involved, noted some reports of extremely odd events in the sky that might be connected, and has drawn some very different conclusions about what might be at the heart of this strange saga. A seriously impressive undertaking that is laid out in his 2012 book, Children from the Sky, which clocks in at just over 600 pages. To tell you a little bit more about the man, Duncan has been an active author, researcher, broadcaster, editor, critic, tutor, and more since 1970, with many contributions to fiction and nonfiction, as well as nine published books with interesting titles such as Man and the Stars, Contact and Communication with Other Intelligence, Man and the Planets, the Resources of the Solar System, and Stones and the Stars, Building Scotland's Newest Megalith, just to name a few. A bona fide expert in astronomy, journalism, and the strange goings-on in the village of Woolpit in the 12th century, gracing us with his presence all the way from Scotland, Duncan Lunan, my good man. Welcome to the higher side. Ah, oh, thank you, Greg. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so... Man, I can't thank you enough for doing this because there's just no one else who could have this in-depth of a conversation about such a unique story, and I'm really jazzed up about it. Clearly, when you dig into it, this isn't some random lore from the old days. This is a real story with elite families involved, political intrigue, interest from the king, and a lot of other reasons to conclude there's something to it. And I guess the best place to start is with where the original story originates. There seems to be two main sources, but I guess to get us started, walk us through the story as it's told from these sources, and we can flesh out some of the discrepancies and misconceptions along the way. Okay, 
I'm going to start with where I found it, because when I was a student, I wanted to do a degree in astronomy, but my maths proved not to be good enough. And I ended up taking English and philosophy through to higher degree level. And in the papers, specifically the test paper on medieval and early Elizabethan Jacobean literature, one of the set texts was The Anatomy of Melancholy by Robert Burton, published in 1613. A quite extraordinary work. The Everyman edition of it runs to three volumes. In general, it's a medical textbook, but Burton was a Renaissance man, and he filled it out with everything he knew about everything. He covers a whole vast panorama of subjects in the course of this huge work. Right in the middle of it, in the middle of what's volume two of the Everyman edition, he has what he calls a digression of the air, in which he discusses meteorology and astronomy. And in the middle of that, he is talking at that point about the fact that people like Galileo and Giordano Bruno and others have either observed or postulated the existence of worlds other than the Earth, and that Galileo and Kepler in particular have proved that the planets are indeed other worlds in independent orbit around the sun. So naturally, for his time, he leaps to the conclusion that in that case, they must be occupied, they must be inhabited, because God wouldn't have gone to the trouble of creating them otherwise. They must be there to serve a purpose, and obviously that's to support more people. And right in the very center of the whole thing, you get this amazing throwaway remark that it may be those green children that fell from the sky, which Nubergensis writes of in his time, came from thence. Hmm. And it just leaves it at that and keeps going. And at the time, when I read it as a student, I thought, one day, I'm going to check that out. The sources were in the footnotes. Nubergensis was William of Newborough, who was late 12th century historian, regarded as one of the most reliable sources, particularly because he regarded himself as a ghostbuster. Every village was claiming that they had miracles on their patch because if the church would verify this, as I said at one point in the book, it's like having the U.S. Air Force leave you with a runway that can take jumbo jets. Mm -hmm. Suddenly the tourist trade coming your way in the form of the pilgrims of the time who would go to pretty well any site that had miraculous connotations. William and Newborough thought there's too much of this going on and he sets out to demolish the claims of a lot of the supposedly miraculous events, and comes down on just four, really, or four categories that he feels he can't rule out. The chief one, which he begins and ends with, is the case of the green children. What bothers him about it is that it doesn't seem to illustrate any point of scripture, which is the whole point of miracles. He says, well, I just can't see what this is about, and I thought I was going to leave it out. But I have interviewed so many witnesses and witnesses of such quality that I have become convinced that it really happened. So he then tells the story and he goes through his other cases, which are comparatively mundane fairy stories, which he hasn't actually been able to disprove. And he concludes that these can all be attributed to the activities of good or bad angels. And then he comes back to the green children. He says, but as for those children that emerge from the earth, he says, I just don't know what to make of it. Hmm. 
but it does not grieve me to have set down this most strange and wonderful event. So there you have William. The other account is by Ralph of Coggeshall, the abbot of Coggeshall Abbey. He wrote it down somewhat later in his old age. But the really remarkable thing here is that where you have miraculous stories in the medieval chronicles, almost every time they are simply copying one another. You can determine which one is the oldest, and then you can see that the others have been copied from it, usually by leaving things out rather than adding to them, but sometimes adding. However, obviously, the same story from the same original. But Ralph of Congressville is coming at it from a completely different perspective. Where William says that he interviewed witnesses to the children's arrival and events over the next year or so, Ralph is talking from the perspective that he knows the family with whom the formerly green girl is now living at the time of his writing as an adult. Yet the details of the story are almost identical, but told in completely different language, different vocabulary, and from quite a different perspective. And that is extremely unusual. It leads you strongly to think that there is something actually behind this. Mm -hmm. So having got that far in a couple of bursts of research, one of which I did in the early 70s and another in the late 80s, Shows you how long this had been incubating in my mind. Huh. In 1993, I was covering a conference in London on what became the Rosetta mission, Europe's recent mission to a comet, which ended last year. Um, having done that and phoned in my story, I decided it was time to look into the Green Children mystery. And before going home, I went up to East Anglia and went to Bury St. Edmunds and out to the village of Woolpit, which is about eight miles away. And before I went, I got together with a friend of mine who's a history graduate, and I asked him, well, what questions should I be asking? And we worked out a list of questions. So I got a very warm welcome in Woolpit and other places I went to round about, and I kept asking my questions, and people kept replying, You'll have to go to the county records office for that sort of thing. Hmm. So I went back into Bury St. Edmunds, which is a county town, and I joined the county archives research network. Give you an idea of how long ago this was, 1993. They then pointed me to the card index and said, there's the filing cabinet where it's all kept. You just tell us what you want out of there. <laughs> and left me to it. Five hours later, starving, exhausted, and dehydrated. I reeled out into Bury St. Edmund's Market, thinking, here comes a bestseller, because I discovered that there were answers to the questions. And it looked as if the line of inquiry that my friend and I had worked out hadn't been pursued, at least not in this kind of detail, by anyone else. And the answers were there to find, which is so much unlike your usual experience of investigating stories of contact, past or present that I thought, well, I've really got to start taking this seriously now. Mm -hmm. In the end, it turned into a 10-year project, culminating in the publication, as you say, of Children from the Sky in 2012. And although that's nearly 500 pages long, that's about two-thirds of the length of the original manuscript. Ah. <laughs> there was so much that had to be left out, simply for lack of space. Wow. So... I am now convinced that it really happened, and we can go into the reasons for that. 
Yes, that is some great context. I really love hearing about both sources of the original tale, Ralph's and Williams, that they are from different perspectives, just the rarity of that, the fact that there's no real moral to the story, which might exist in fairy tales, and there's no biblical elements. So there's all these reasons to suggest, yeah, this story is real, and it did happen. I guess when it comes to the story itself, many of the details tend to come out of the children's interrogation or what the girl said later in life. And I guess these would be the things that lead people to speculate that the kids came from somewhere underground, which is, of course, not the conclusion you come to. But what about those elements or where do we um, maybe see the story from a different angle or take those elements out of it? Or how did those parts get injected? Well, they did emerge from an ancient earthwork, and that's where Woolpit takes its name from. Most sources say that it's a corruption of Woolpit, but in fact, if the pits are the ones surrounding a feature called the Lady's Well, which do date back to the medieval times and seem to be the only ones that do, the only thing I could find, if that's the case, the pits there, or trenches, it's a heart-shaped feature with a glade like an island in the middle of it. And for much of the time, these surrounding heart-shaped moats are filled with water. Um, They're much too big to be deadfalls. They couldn't ever have been wolf traps. No sensible wolf would have fallen into anything that big. So, yeah, the derivation of the village's name is a little bit odd, but obviously it does relate to the pit. And it was from that that the children emerged. They came out at harvest time made a run for it across the fields, and basically run down by the harvesters and captured. It was discovered very fast that they were green all over. They seemed to have been quite roughly treated at first. They were put on public show, in what condition you can only guess at. And some time passed before common sense kicked in, particularly because it occurred to someone that, miraculous or not, they might need to eat, (laughs) and they wouldn't. At that point, They were taken to the home of, as it says in the text, Lord Richard de Kalna at Wykes. Now, Wykes is part of a place called Nettishall, near the boundary of Norfolk. It's 20-odd miles from Woolpit. And to get to it, the villagers would have had to cross the land of two other barons who actually outranked de Kalna. And... The obvious thing for them to do would have been to take the children to Bury St. Edmunds itself, to the abbey, because that was much closer. And nominally, the village belonged to the abbot of Bury St. Edmunds, although it didn't at that particular moment, but we'll come back to that. Anyway, they were taken to this chap, de Calna, who is almost untraceable. I really had to dig to find him. A lot of modern writers have just taken guesses at who and what he was. You'll find a lot of books that say he was a local landowner or he owned the village, or some think that because there's so little record of him, he might have been a masterless knight, basically a horse and a sword for hire. But when I started digging into him, it turns out there's much more to it. He was, in fact, a younger son of a very prominent family, which included most of the bishops in England and a succession of royal chancellors, um, at least one chaplain to the king, and one chap who had, an uncle of his, who had actually been viceroy of England at one point when the king was abroad. The de Kalners were very powerful people. 
it is curious in itself that Dekalna, being a younger son, should have been knighted. It wasn't done normally. Just about the only circumstances in which you could come by it would be what we nowadays would call a battlefield promotion. He could have been in combat and distinguished himself sufficiently to be elevated to that status, but somehow he reached it and surpassed it. He was, in fact, a vavasur. He was intermediate in rank between a knight and a baron. He had at least eight and possibly 13 or more other knights in service to him, which makes him a very wealthy and powerful man, quite apart from his connections. But the most jaw-dropping thing when I came to it was that after the civil war between Stephen and Matilda, when Henry II came to the throne and things calmed down, three or four years later, the financial records of the kingdom were restarted in the form of documents which are known as the pipe rolls. And in the very first entry, the very first pipe roll after the war, it is stated that Richard de Calna and Richard de Hastings, who was the English master of the Knights Templar at the time, have both been excused all taxes because of their outstanding service to the king. Mm-hmm. And this is pretty well unheard of. If you do the king a favour, you get excused a tax or some taxes. Being excused all taxes makes you invisible. Yeah. And for the rest of his life, and de Calna appears in the records very, very occasionally, and only as a rule when he's witnessing some document that another member of his family is involved in. So essentially, he's like the head of the Secret Service. He's M, if you will, <laughs> as in James Bond. And this is the person whom the villagers went way out of their way to take the green children to, it very strongly suggests that somebody had been told, if anything happens, report to Sir Richard, or Lord Richard, I beg his pardon, and he'll know what to do. And probably there was a bag of silver at the end of it for them when they did it. Mm -hmm. So already we're finding that there is much more to this story than the superficial account might suggest. Indeed. I just think this is so fascinating because a lot of people, you know, do take that for granted. As a fan of the story, we just think, oh, a local landowner, some guy who was probably kind enough to take in the kids, you know, some good Samaritan who took in the girl. And we really never thought to dig much deeper. But not only is the break in protocol interesting that they didn't take it to the nearest baron, you know, they went all the way to his place, Mm. and also that he was excluded from all taxes. I mean, these are pretty impressive details. And one paragraph I had written down here pretty much sums up what you said and adds to the fact that there's more context here is where you say, Richard de Calna was much more important than people think. His family were highly placed throughout the Church of England. He was very close to the king who took a great deal of interest in Woolpit and in the green children after they arrived. The event was anticipated. Henry II had already taken control of Woolpit and put one of his top officials in charge of it and he put crack troops into the area when the children arrived. Almost certainly they were Knights Templar, and de Calna was an associate Templar. His manor at Wykes was next door to the English masters, and the Pope was at least aware that something was happening in the area. And I love that. I mean, it really sets the stage for some big event. It'd be like if the Pentagon sent Instop people to watch over the desert in Roswell a few years before that situation. Yes. Clearly, there's a lot of context here that's important. 
I like that. <laughs> the bit about the king annexing the village is quite remarkable because you read in the books that he was doing this all the time. But I've studied the history of Henry II in a lot of detail. I've read a lot of Church Chronicles and Annals and property lists and all of that. I haven't found another instance. But he did, in 1160, take the village away from the abbey at Bury St. Edmunds. And his excuse was he had a poor clerk who needed the income from the village. Now, Woolpit at that time had about 100 inhabitants and was worth about £10 a year. And the poor clerk to whom he assigned the care of the village was a chap called Geoffrey Riddle, who was essentially deputy foreign secretary, for want of a better word. He was just about the richest man in the kingdom. Part of his specific job description was that he was supposed to entertain foreign royalty at his own expense when they visited England. And he did it. This was a man who thought nothing in those days of spending £10,000 on a single banquet. He was not stuck for £10 a year. And this comment that he was a poor clerk who really needed the money is just ridiculous when you look into it. But the chap, it seems, and I am adding two and two and making five here, but it looks as if he assigned Woolpit to a key man on his staff called Richard Barr. Barr is an extraordinary character in himself. He comes out of nowhere, as it seems. He's the son of an archdeacon at Lincoln, who turns out to be working with a cousin of Richard de Calna's. There's circumstantial reason to think that Richard Barr was actually Richard de Calna's godson. But at the age of 19, he suddenly rockets up in the diplomatic service. He becomes number two ambassador for Henry II to the Vatican at the time when relations between England and the Vatican are at their lowest until Henry VIII because the murder of Becket has just occurred at Canterbury and the whole country is facing excommunication. And the only ambassador the Pope will talk to is 19-year-old Richard Barr, whom the king has authorised to speak personally with the Pope on his behalf and try to intercede for the country. And in the middle of a denunciatory letter to the king by the Pope, denouncing the king and all his works, the Pope throws in an aside which says, from all of this I exempt our dear son Richard Barr who has laboured so tirelessly on your behalf. So, yeah, he's quite something, this guy. <laughs> but another aspect of it is that at the time of the annexation, which was... 10 years or more earlier than Beckett's death, a schoolmaster in Bury St. Edmunds, who afterwards took holy orders and became abbot, went to Rome on his own account to protest to the Pope about the annexation of the village. I've talked to medieval historians and said, am I the first one to notice that this is out of the question and the story that he tells doesn't make any sense and details don't add up? It's not something that would ever have happened. He'd have been putting his head right on the chopping block if the story was true. But he put it about when he came back that he'd got a letter from the Pope ordering the king to give the village back, which didn't happen for another 12 years. But the letter survives in the archives of Bury St. Edmund's Abbey. It's not addressed to the king, it's addressed to the abbot. 
And what it says is, concerning the church of St. Mary Woolpit, and by implication the village, I have given orders that the king is to return it to you when he shall have finished with it. Hmm. <laughs> Which is a totally different ballgame again. Something big was going on in Woolpit, and the king knew about it, and the Pope knew about it. And there's a lot of hidden meaning in the texts. Yes. And when you come to the account that the children gave of themselves, which I think we need to turn to here, it gets almost funny. The first thing that I noticed when it came to it was, this is William of Newbury. It says, when they had learned our manner of speaking, it seemed to the wise that they might be christened, and even that was done. And at that point, the narrative, both his and Ralph of Cogitals, without explanation, go into formal Latin, legal parlance. And passages that modern translators have been rendering as he said and they said are actually gave as evidence and swore on oath and similar formal terms. So I rang a friend of mine who had a diploma in theology from the Catholic College of Cardinals. And I said to him, have you any idea what that's about? And he said, oh, everybody knows that. And I said, well, I'm very sorry, but I don't. Um, he said, well, even today in the Roman Catholic Church, a christening in controversial circumstances must be preceded by a formal inquiry called an inquisitio with a small i, which must be conducted by a bishop. So immediately you're going, anyone reading in those times William of Newbury's account, or Ralph of Gorgeshaw's, would themselves almost certainly have been churchmen and would have known that. Hmm. So, okay, now we're in a formal hearing and the children are asked, this is very clever, who and from whence they were. And they reply, we are people of the land of St. Martin. And modern writers have all been fooled by this into thinking that that is the reply to from whence have you come. But it isn't. Um, it took me quite a while to find it, but the land of St. Martin in the Doomsday Book in Block Capitals, Terra Sancti Martini, is the Essex property of the Church of St. Martin's Le Grand, which was the principal sanctuary in England, stood next to St. Paul's and was under the Bishop of London who was the superior of Cogeshall Abbey, where Ralph wrote his account, and was very much the king's man in the quarrel with Beckett, both before and after Beckett's death. So again, anyone reading that at the time is going to say, the Bishop of London has intervened here. He has conducted the Inquisitio. And almost certainly it will be because the king told him to do it. I think we'll just turn the page and look at something else. Right. Don't dig deeper. <laughs> a pretty clear indication that you want to keep your nose out of this because <laughs> the king isn't mentioned, the Bishop of London isn't mentioned, but any knowledgeable churchman would have known what was going on here. Interesting. Anyway, the bishop pretends not to get it. And he says, oh, that sounds all right. Do they believe in our saviour there, my dear? which, as the late Roddy Chisholm pointed out, is a very strange thing to ask if he believes they've come from a land named after a Christian saint. Right. But the reply from the girl is, in effect, oh, yes, you can't see the place for churches, which it's pretty clear that she had been told to say because 
in the version that she told in adult life, she doesn't mention this aspect at all. However, there's one more question to answer before they're home free, and that is, does the sun rise or set there? And all the children have to say at that point is, yes, because it was believed there was no sun in fairyland. But they can't bring themselves to lie. And instead, they say, no, we come from a country which exists in permanent twilight and is separated by a very broad river from a country of permanent sunlight. They're talking about a planet with a trapped rotation, keeping the same face always towards the sun, and they're saying that they live in the twilight zone. And Richard Burton, of course, knew enough Renaissance astronomy to realize those conditions couldn't be found anywhere on Earth. And that is why he suggested that they'd come from Mars or Venus. Because rather than saying they came out from underground, even although they had emerged from this pit. Anyway, they get away with it. Orders are duly given that the children shall be christened. And having dug into it at great lengths, again, I can't prove this. And in fact, there's a chap at Imperial College who has challenged me on this and says my evidence isn't strong enough to argue for it, but possibly agree to differ on that because he hadn't read the whole book. <laughs> but it appears that she was christened Agnes and she married Richard Barr subsequently. William Neuvera says she married a man who was living at Lynn, and it's quite possible. Again, evidence is circumstantial, but it's quite possible Richard Barr was living at Lynn at that time under the Bishop of Norfolk, who had been the principal ambassador and whose deputy he was in the Beckett affair. At any rate, though, the thing is, yeah, Agnes, the girl they couldn't burn, if you look up the legend of St. Agnes, she had to be beheaded by her persecutors because when they tried to burn her alive, the faggots wouldn't light. Hmm. And I can just picture Richard de Kalna and Richard Barr walking out of the hearing at the end of it, wiping their brows and going, that was a close one. We'll have to christen her Agnes. <laughs> it all fits and continues to fit. There is much more circumstantial evidence. I freely admit it is all circumstantial, but as you say, there are several hundred pages of it in the book. And the fact that it all ties together in the way that it does is quite striking. When the Fortean Times reviewed the book, the reviewer said, oh, Lunan has simply selected the facts to fit his case. And obviously, yes, I've selected the ones that are relevant. But I haven't been ignoring any facts that contradict what I'm putting forward. Mm -hmm. I've been very careful about that. When I'd been on it only about six months, the late John Braithwaite said to me, you are definitely onto something big here. He said, if somebody makes up a story like this, they tend to make it up out of whole cloth. They'll invent a story. They'll put in a few real place names and names of real people to make it look convincing. But when you research it, you find out that those people couldn't have been in those places at those times, and the story falls apart. A fictitious story will not stand up to the kind of detailed examination you're giving it. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he said, if it's not extraterrestrial contact, you've got the political thriller of all time. <laughs> Indeed. So that would be the question I would ask you is, what about that tunnel aspect? Because I think a lot of people who know this story might be confused right now and thinking, well, I thought one of the major details was that they traveled through a tunnel 
from somewhere subterranean because they were watching over their father's livestock and they heard some kind of bells or chimes and they just followed it and then emerged in the surface world. Where does that detail come up and why do you think that part might not be the literal truth? Well, I mentioned that there are only a very few differences between William of Newburgh's account and Ralph of Coggeshall's. That's one of them. I'll come to it in a moment. The other one, which somebody's almost bound to come up with, is that William of Newborough says the event happened during the reign of King Stephen. Um, that is not compatible with Ralph of Coggeshall's account. He didn't go to Coggeshall until 1160 at the earliest. He wasn't old enough, and he was a prior at Barnwell in Cambridgeshire before that. And Richard de Calna died in 1189, so you've got a fairly narrow time slot in which these events could have occurred, and in particular for de Calna to have been visiting Ralph when the girl was an adult. Um, it's got to be in the reign of Henry II to fit those facts. And whoever told William of Newborough that it happened in the reign of King Stephen was either getting confused, as could well have been the case, or because they said it happened during the trouble, or it happened when the army was here. You've got two time slots for that in Stephen's reign and in Henry II's. And apparently people interviewing old people now about World War I and about the Blitz, people get the air raids mixed up as to which war they were in. <laughs> it happens even today. So that probably accounts for that. Now, the other major difference is in Ralph of Coggeshall's account, and remember, this is the girl speaking as an adult. She tells this story about following the sound of bells, wandering through a network of caves and coming out in Woolpit. This, quite simply, is not physically possible. Woolpit stands on Pleistocene clay. Water table, even now, is only a few feet below the surface. In medieval times, it was surrounded by swamp, and buildings didn't even have foundations. They were built on wooden rafters set in the surface of the ground. Aerial archaeology is no use around there for that reason. Um, there is no network of caves. It doesn't and couldn't exist. Hmm. But in the trial, as described by William, which is the earlier account, he's been interviewing witnesses to the events when the children were children. But they are asked, how did they get here? And they say, oh, well, we don't know. It happened because we were out with our father's livestock on a certain day. And the Latin construction here is very strong causative. It happened because they were out on that day with the livestock. In other words, they shouldn't have been. And they heard a great sound. And at this point, in most modern accounts, it gets elided and it says, we heard the great sound of the bells of Beres and Edmund. What they actually said was they heard a sound like the bells of Beres and Edmunds, possibly some kind of alarm, because the next line goes, and then suddenly, as if placed in some absence of mind, we found ourselves in the field where you were reaping. Hmm. It's an instantaneous transition. And the most striking thing in it, to my mind, is that this kid not only knows what amnesia is, she knows she hasn't got it. Suddenly, as if placed in some absence of mind. She is not a runaway from some primitive tribe living in the woods. She's educated. Hmm. But I think the children probably did have more of an understanding of what had happened to them than they're letting on at this point, because um, 
they don't want probably to get drawn into the details. But it does look as if we're talking about some form of matter transmission. Right. And this is where we probably also have to throw in the point that the children were unquestionably human. Willem of Newborough says the girl married. I think I've identified her as the wife of Richard Barr, Agnes. And if so, she had two children. And I've traced both of their lines of descent, one for over a century after the event, and the other all the way down to the present. Remarkably enough, one of the descendants of Agnes Barr in the present, whoever she was, is the current and um, previous Earl's Ferrers, um, a noble line in its current incarnation going back several hundred years, men of distinction. The father of the present Earl was deputy leader of the House of Lords under Margaret Thatcher. And when this lot came out, he was actually outed by a Scottish paper called the Evening Times after several larger papers had, uh, had refused to publish the name. And he thought it was a hoot. He gave them a quote under the headline, Tory peer descended from green woman from outer space. He said, it sounds bizarre. I knew my ancestors were colourful, but not that colourful. Mm. <laughs> so I wrote to him and said, I'm very glad you've taken this in such good part because I wasn't sure how to approach you with it. And he wrote, but I can add several hundred years to that branch of your family tree going back. And he wrote back saying, never mind the family tree. Tell me about the green woman from outer space. <laughs> but she was. She was human. She married. She had children. Um, both chronicles are very definite that once they lost the green color, the children were indistinguishable from the regular inhabitants of East Anglia. Right. We're talking about some kind of settlement that they were in, which has been established probably by mass abduction for experimental purposes. None are definite clues that that's the case. Um, it's the X-Files in the 12th century. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do love that phrase. It's being done with the knowledge, if not the active connivance, of at least some of the terrestrial authorities. Right. The master of the Templars, the king, the pope, they at least know about it. So that becomes the theory that we have a situation where the government is involved with ETs, there's mass abductions going on. How do we explain the green color? Well, the really extraordinary thing here to my mind is that nobody actually looks at the text. When, as an adult, she was asked about it, she replied that all the people and all the things in that land, but the context implies that she's talking about plants, all the people and all the plants in that land were dyed with the same green color. It's vegetable dye. And why are they all wearing it? Now, in Ralph's account, I've dedicated my book to the principal teacher of Latin at my old school. I could never have done this but for his efforts back then. I found over and over again I had to look very hard at the Latin accounts, either at the literal translation or in some cases figurative translation where in Latin you can say the same thing or different things in the same words in some cases. In both accounts, both Williams and Ralph's, when the children say we were following our father's crops, our father's herbs, I beg your pardon. The verb is passive. It actually says the animals were being followed. It could be that there was something else following them. 
And looking for an explanation, in Richard Dawkins' book, A River Out of Eden, I came across a fascinating chapter on predator eyesight, in which she is emphasizing the fact that predators' eyesight gets very highly specialized through evolutionary processes. Famously, the frog starves to death if surrounded by dead flies because it has to see movement to recognize prey. Hmm. But polar bears have eyesight adapted to the season in which they emerge from hibernation and have to hunt right away to build up their store of fat again. And giant cats have preferred times of day at which they hunt and their eyesight is adapted to those times. So if there's something coming over the river to hunt, which is accustomed to permanent bright daylight and is now hunting in twilight, if you've dyed yourself the same colour as the vegetation and you stand still, perhaps it can't see you. Because there's no mention of the animals being dyed. Perhaps in that situation, whatever it is, it'll take a lamb and not a child. Hmm. Which takes us back towards the experimental idea. Who has set this situation up and who's watching and what are they trying to learn from it? The people behind this may not be awfully nice people, at least by our standards. <laughs> but we don't know who they are. There's very little, if any, indication of who or what is actually behind this. But whoever they are, it seems that they can walk between worlds and do as they will. Right. You know, you mentioned this isolating this to that very narrow time slot in which it could be possible. And 1173 is the year you've pinned down for the emergence of the green children. And as you say in the book, it was the peak year for the 12th century's solar activity. You say, in the summer in Scotland, an extraordinary star was recorded as being seen motionless in the west by day and night. In September in Scotland, there was a two-hour solar obscuration at noon with no clouds or eclipse, so the sun is being blocked for two hours with nothing else in the sky. And in England, reported in 1172, just a year before the proposed year of the children, two moons were seen in the sky that year. So these are all very, really weird, uh, interesting things to have recorded, even just on their own. But you think these elements are too strange to not be connected somehow, right? Yeah, there was a huge amount of auroral activity at that time. And if you look at the tree ring graphs and other indications of how active the sun was, there's a spike in 1173, a spike on what is already a very high peak, the highest peak of solar activity since the Bronze Age. And yeah, extraordinary things were going on in the sky. There's one account, and it sounds very much like a high-altitude nuclear explosion. And others, what appears to be a sonic boom that's held all over England and Wales and Ireland, Something definitely wasn't synchronized with the rotation of the Earth when that was happening. So I went to a physicist friend, and I said to him, right, imagine a matter transmitter. You've got a planet with a trapped rotation at one end, which, because of its very slow rotation, presumably has no magnetic field. And at this end, you've got the Earth's magnetic field violently disturbed. Can you visualize a matter transmitter that will start having accidents in that situation? And he said, oh, yes, tell me what makes it go wrong, and it's much easier to figure out how it works. So he came out with a purely theoretical account of a matter transmitter that might 
indeed generate these effects. So maybe that is indeed what's going on. And what I have found looking around for similar events is that there are clusters of them in medieval times. And yeah, they occur when the sun is disturbed in the same chronicles and in the same places where you find accounts of violent auroral displays and the like, you tend to find people appearing and disappearing and lots of correlations when you look into those stories in depth. You start finding connections with Woolpit. That is fascinating that this could be part of a larger tapestry of situations that are kind of similar. Yeah. It isn't that common for appearances and disappearances to occur as recorded in the Chronicles, usually with an index entry from a Victorian chronicler saying, compiler, I should say, editor saying, and putting it down as legend. But you want to look long and hard at some of these legends, especially when you find out that the people owning the ground where these events happened also have connections to Woolpit or to other people in the Green Children's story. Right. There's an awful lot here. Um, read the book. <laughs> That's the best plan. <laughs> Yes, there is. I almost wanted to call it a textbook in the introduction, but just the idea of a textbook on such a strange little story is just so foreign to people. But I mean, that is what it feels like. It's very heavy and it's dense. And I mean, that's great. That's a good thing for a story like this when you're trying to find some credible answers and follow every last lead. It's important. And I'm glad you did the work. Well, yes, I felt that in order to put it into print at all, I had to justify what I was saying as fully as I could, provide the references. Even at that, in having to abridge it for publication, I've been taken to task because I haven't given every single reference. And in some cases, perhaps I did things I possibly shouldn't have. But yeah, I put in as much as I possibly could within the length the publisher allowed me. Um, for years and years before that, people had been saying to me, why don't you publish it as fiction? Why don't you do the sensational account and forget all the historical facts and just go for the dramatic? And I kept saying, no, if I do that, particularly if I dramatize it, mm. if I do that at all, people won't be able to tell what's real and what's not real. And so they'll just dismiss it all. So I felt I had to, <laughs> I had to publish this book to get it all on record. But the time has very possibly come, I think, to do it in a more accessible form, shall we say, on which I can say, if you want to know more, the fuller details are in Children from the Sky. But for the moment, Children from the Sky is available uh, from the publishers. And uh, I feel I could almost paraphrase James Joyce and say it took me 10 years to write it. The least you can do is take 10 years to read it. <laughs> but definitely, I am looking for publishers to go further with all this. If there are any out there listening, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> I would love to see that happen. And I guess I'm curious, are there any other topics getting your attention? Any more books planned? You mentioned there is one about to release, right? That's right. It's another first in my background. In 1989, I edited for a small firm called Orkney Press the first ever anthology of science fiction by Scottish writers. And... It suffered the fate of the first of its kind. People said, well, why should you do that? And surely the Scots don't have anything to say. And surely it's parochial. And as I said to one editor, Ray Bradbury sets all his stuff in small towns in Kansas. Why should something by a Scottish writer be parochial? 
But the book does, in fact, have, it's called Starfield, and it has some real stars in it. When it was first mooted by the late Chris Boyce, whom I mentioned before as a project, we enlisted the late Professor Edwin Morgan, Naomi Mitchison, and Alistair Gray, who's still alive, as the stars of the Starfield, and built the book around the contributions that they offered, and all three of them strongly supported the project. And below them, if you will, it's got the writers of the time in the in the late 80s, like myself and Archie Troy and Chris Boyce. And then it introduces the winners and runners-up of the science fiction competition that I was running for the, the Glasgow Herald at the time. So it's full of talent. And some of those newcomers have gone on to do great things since as well. So, yeah, it's a book I'm very proud of. It covers by Sidney Jordan, whom I mentioned before. And it's now being published in paperback by Edinburgh firm called Shoreline of Infinity, who have started the first science fiction Scottish magazine for a long time and are doing very well with it, 12 issues to date. And they published an anthology of my time travel stories a couple of years ago called The Elements of Time, which I was very pleased about, illustrated by throughout by Sidney Jordan, as Children from the Sky is, by the way. So after 29 years, Starfield is going to be reprinted in paperback, which does make me feel that there must be something to it after all. Yeah. Well, man, congrats on just another accomplishment on a long list of them. <laughs> it's being published. The launch will be at a science fiction convention called Satellite 6, which is being held in Glasgow from the 25th to 27th of this month. Awesome. So I will be there for the launch. It's on the Friday on the 25th. I uh, wish I could be there too. Short hop <laughs> from where you are. Oh, sure. <laughs> 11 hours the time I did it. You're in, you're in California, right? Exactly. Yeah, I have <laughs> flown directly from Glasgow to California. Woo! 11 hours over the pole. Man. Can be done. <laughs> <laughs> Braver man than I. I have to stop on the East Coast first to stretch my legs. I can't do it over six feet in one of those little tin cans. But, man, I wish I could be there and... Duncan, I really am in awe of the amount of research and journalism that went into fleshing out the Green Children story. I'm holding out hope for the Inner Earth Threads, but no doubt you have uncovered a lot about the validity of the story, the DeKalna family, and so much of the surrounding context. It's something you got to respect, so kudos to you. Children from the Sky is the name of the book. What else should people know about following up on your work, your website, all that good stuff before I cut you loose? Yes. The website, www.duncanlunan.com. Due for updating, but it's going to get it shortly with the help of my good lady wife, you know, especially with these lectures coming up. And I've been asked to write a series of articles for a website called Ancient Origins. So that's something to look out for. Mm. So I'm certainly keeping very busy. There's a lot going on. <laughs> yes, man. Hell of a journey. Solid. Again, great work. And keep doing what you do out there. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Let's keep in touch. Sweet Dolores of the Construct, people. I hope you're still with me. But Duncan Lunan, bring in one hell of a story out into the light. I'm so happy to have been able to do this show and to have this book on my shelf because I've always been a big fan of this story in particular. The Green Children of Woolpit is definitely one of my favorite stories, period. So if you don't agree, maybe you didn't like hearing about it for two hours, but to have done this amount of research, to have done this amount of work, I got so much respect for that. 
I hope sometime, someday, I can do something as respectable. Sometimes I get that real itch to do primary research or work on something instead of just talking into a microphone to the real champions of the people, but hey, that's my problem. Of course, I do still differ from Duncan on his final conclusion, but that doesn't really matter. It doesn't make me like his book or this conversation any less, and it happens all the time, and people seem to not understand how you can like a person's work and still come to a different conclusion, which is pretty silly. But this is just a great example of it, of how I can just be in awe and respect of this guy's work, the detail and the sweat equity that's been put into investigating it in these short lives we have. And I read the book, I do this show, and I'm so much more convinced that something happened. We have the details of the geopolitical curiosities, we have Duncan tracing the lineage and the story sources, we have some records. And it's also super convincing that both accounts, as you read them, as Duncan said, they both break into Latin and it's like, what the hell is this doing here? Well, all these sorts of things needed a formal clergy interrogation, and there's the Latin. This isn't just some vague, broad story. It's got depth and detail. And with all the respect in the world, I just got a break from Duncan's conclusion that they came from space. I don't see enough to conclude that. We don't have a ship. We don't really have any solid leads on technology or mechanisms that would put the kids in Woolpit randomly. Duncan says matter transmitter, but that's not something I can find on Amazon even today, hundreds of years later. I do think that idea of a medieval abduction campaign is super fascinating, especially if it's tied into the elite of their day. And it is weird that we have some shuffling around as if this event was expected or intercepted. But I kind of find a disconnect between the meticulous research he's done on the case, the historic stuff, and how cavalier I consider him to be about the wild conclusion that they came from space and were accidentally transported back with a matter transmitter device or some malfunction. I think that's a leap. I know he thinks an inner earth civilization is a huge leap. Where's the evidence for that? I also don't have the astronomic expertise that he does either, which weighs pretty heavily on the conclusion that he gives. Maybe if I did, I would see it his way, so I don't discount that. But the kids did emerge from an ancient earthwork. It's a vague term. They did say they emerged suddenly. Maybe it's a dimensional shift. Maybe it's some kind of Bermuda Triangle ley line rip in reality. Maybe it's a hidden hyperspace kingdom they came tumbling out of. (laughs) I think this is just one of those things. If you think it's possible that we have inner earth civilizations, which doesn't require the earth to be hollow, of course, although I still think there are plenty of examples where the force of spin pushes things outward, leaving a cavity rather than the densest spot in the middle, but regardless... If you're open to the idea of beings in the earth, obviously some human offshoot, then with all the context and history Duncan brings, you've got no problem with the story. But if you're more of the mind that there can be no or is no inner earth civilization, and you're confronted with a story that seems to have legs, then you need another answer. And so Duncan gives his best. Yes, she says she's from a place of perpetual twilight and a town across the rivers in constant bright sun. Duncan sees this as the description of a planet, maybe it is, but we've been through a lot of accounts of inner earth caves and tunnels which describe exactly that, perpetual twilight. Now, it doesn't really make sense to me, I don't know what that source of light is, but 
cross-cultural you hear these stories. If you read at Adorfa, that's how the inner earth is described. Shamanjaneer also read that section from Graham Hancock's Supernatural, and I know I've heard it many other places. It's a lot to mull over, though, the fact that they were genetically compatible, she had children. I mean, yes, Duncan never claims these kids are aliens, he's clear about that. But if they're genetically compatible with us and only have a different tint to their skin for the most part, sure, it could be dye from some space zoo or research facility that color codes its abductees and the foods they can safely eat, but you don't need to go to that extent to make the pieces fit if you're open to offshoots of humanity living in the Earth. Ultimately, it is still a mystery, so I don't want to be too aggressive about that slight disagreement, and I'm sure Duncan is very used to going over this work and having someone try to cling to that inner Earth element because it is such a big part of the legend. So I'm sure he's no stranger to the things I'm saying now. He makes a great point about the swampy environment and the clay soil that there just aren't caves and tunnels there. But, you know, I want to believe, so I did some Googling, and Nottingham is 100 miles away from Woolpit. It's a two-hour drive. Yeah, 100 miles isn't necessarily next door, but it's closer than San Diego is to L.A. It's really not that far. But in Nottingham, there is a place called the City of Caves. Here's what Wikipedia says. The City of Caves is a visitor attraction in Nottingham, which consists of a network of caves carved out of sandstone that have been variously used over the years as a tannery, public house cellars, and as an air raid shelter. The city of Nottingham has hundreds of man-made caves, which have been in use for over a thousand years. I'm sure Duncan knows about this place. He has to. It's not a secret. And yeah, Woolpit is a hundred miles closer to the coast, which does make a difference geographically with the soil and everything. But when you look at a map of the caves in the United Kingdom, Though none of them land directly on Woolpit, I wouldn't call caves and deep inner earth tunnels in the area impossible. I also don't think they've all been discovered, but the solar activity he describes again is very interesting too, and you gotta factor that in. But when I go on other shows and they want to talk weird, I sometimes dust off the green children's story and throw it out there. And I always note that geologists have identified a layer of the earth called the Moho layer. It's 22 miles down. It's super porous like a sponge. And it's a full layer of the earth that's got huge cavities. It's a layer probably everywhere under the land and oceans. And I contend that a lot of the stories of the inner earth could very well be related to this layer because 22 miles is a long time to travel, especially on foot, but you could imagine that it happens here and there. Maybe Bigfoot lives in the Moho layer and occasionally they just want to see the surface. I don't know, but 20 or 30 miles seems like just the right amount of distance for crossover to be very rare, but to happen every so often. So I can't say. I think where the children came from is pretty speculative either way. But for someone to investigate this seriously and find that it definitely has legs is a great and impressive mark on the world, in my opinion. And mad respect. If you liked hearing from Duncan, let him know. You know, he works hard. I don't know if he's as appreciated as he should be. And I like when we can make people feel a little bit validated. That's the power of THC. The little power we have. Also, if you're out there in the publishing game and you heard the Plus Show, 
Duncan has some new stuff. He's looking to get published. That would be a great connection to make as well. But as always, if you only heard the free, publicly available show, you missed out on half the conversation. Today we talked about honing in on the prospect of a matter transmitter and what that could mean, Duncan's thoughts on the fairy lore in his region, the Sight Hill Stone Circle, the mystery of Newgrange, the wider scope of human-alien contact, which may have been initiated in 10,500 BC, the Amuramura object. You know that Duncan has a lot to say about space, so I had to ask him about this recent event. Seems like a huge deal. And he had some thoughts. And for good measure, we talked about the strange, curious body of a, quote, sort of monster that seemed to have fallen to the ground in 1205. A very creepy description indeed. So come join Plus at the HiresideChatsPlus.com. Join the family. Subscriptions have actually been on fire since I quit YouTube, which is really appreciated because I have a lot of stress over that situation. And I shouldn't even say I quit YouTube. They forced my hand. I'd love to keep those 50,000 subs. I think YouTube is a huge vehicle for where people find the show. Now it's gone. (laughs) But here we are. Thanks to everyone who listens, and I'll see you next time. Your move, medieval operators of the Space Lab facility and the takers of 12th century children. Your fucking move. Woke up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was dark outside It was light coming down from the sky I don't know who or why Must be those strangers that come every night Whose saucer-shaped light put people uptight Blue-green footprints that glow in the dark I hope they get home
Hi, sun.